Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, which is brought to you by Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, find out what's going on and all the rest, and to become a member, hopefully. That would be great. So a um, friend of mine, colleague at AEI, who, you know, just truth be told, I've always had a suspicious view of because he's such close friends with my wife. Um, uh, Gary Schmidt, he has this famous line um, in a, at least a small circle of eggheadery uh, that the Constitution is too important to leave to the lawyers. And so I thought that since we have a surfeit of lawyers who are all telling us what impeachment is and what impeachment isn't, Gary would be a good candidate to come on and talk about it from a broader perspective, in part because he wrote this big thing about it, which we'll uh, link to in the show notes. So uh, Gary is the is a re- the resident scholar of strategic studies and something else. American institutions. And American institutions. I'm in favor of both of those things. Yeah. Well, the, the title suggests that I'm a little bit bipolar, which is probably true. So. Well, that's true because you're like a – you're like a – defense guy but you also like write about like straussian stuff yeah yeah um, well my academic background was political theory to begin with uh-huh. and then i sort of moved over into uh, constitutional issues american presidency and, and that was my academic uh, expertise and then through accident of history wound up working in the national security field in the hill and in the white house which do you enjoy more uh the constitutional issues yeah but the other pays the mortgage i understand um, that's how I feel about my, my, my ballroom <laughs> dancing. Um, if I could do it full time, I would, but, uh, okay. So, um, as I sort of teased in the beginning, impeachment is a thing, right? And, yeah. um, what is, as you put it, what is it for? Well, I think there's two levels to think about. One is just the institutional framework for impeachment, uh, which often gets bypassed, by the way. I mean, so people rush um, to trying to define high crimes and misdemeanors right away, which the the report that you mentioned, the essay that Joe Bassett and I wrote a number of years ago, uh, tries to go through and figure out what high crimes and misdemeanors means. But I, I think it's actually useful to start with just the institutional arrangement mm-hmm. uh, because if – I know one thing about the framers is that they actually spend more time thinking about institutional arrangements than often the exact powers that Congress or the president might have. Right. Um, so when you think about it, uh, it's a simple majority to impeach uh, a, a president or impeach any official uh, in the government. And I think that suggests that, in fact, impeachment was uh, accepted to be a bit more normal uh, more regular than what has happened through the history. We've kind of made it a big exception uh, when, in fact, I think the very fact that it, it just takes a simple majority to vote in impeachment um, suggests that the founding generation probably had in mind that it would happen on a more regular basis. Do you like the analogy to an indictment? Uh, yeah, it serves a purpose. Uh-huh. Um, but that gets you straight into, well, then the next step, of course, is removal. And that requires the two-thirds majority in the Senate. Um, and I think it's important and to note that – so impeachment might be easy, but removal is more difficult. Right. And second of all, removal um, decision is in the hands of politicians, uh, a particular kind of politician, a senator. Um, we, didn't, we didn't have the court do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that suggests that the 
removal procedure in which the Senate becomes kind of a court has the forms of a judicial proceeding, even though the decision itself on removal is obviously a, a political one. Mm-hmm. So um, um, the – but isn't one of the sort of the problems – I mean, I, I use the indictment thing often because – I, I agree that it's useful in the same way a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Mm-hmm. I've tried, been trying to argue for a while now that that the House can impeach anything it wants, basically, right? Because it's not reviewable. The House may be wrong to impeach someone, but it's not like they can take it to the Supreme Court and say, you know, which the current president sometimes suggests on Twitter that, like, somehow, yeah. you know. But um, – but at the same time, I really don't like the way we've turned it into a criminal procedure thing. Is there some other thing from British common law or what the founders had in mind that doesn't transport people's brains into this sort of criminal justice category? Yeah, I think that's, that's actually one of the problems. Um, <laughs> and You mentioned my line about the Constitution is too important to be left to lawyers. I think actually one of the flaws in this proceedings is that it, it's been handed over to basically prosecutors. Yeah. Um, and so the larger framework of trying to understand uh, what the duties of the presidential office require as opposed to looking for you know the smoking gun of some activity um, narrows the decision and the logic of impeachment uh, into a kind of a criminal indictment format, which I think probably isn't – I mean – if the president commits a crime, you obviously want to be able to impeach him, but you also want to think about things that a president might do that can be, in one narrow technical sense, legal, mm-hmm. but done for illicit purposes, and that's you know an impeachable offense as well. Right. So when you actually look at the the Constitutional Convention, so it's sort of like the you know the three bears and Goldilocks. You know they got to the September uh, at the end of the convention in Philadelphia in 1787, and they had a text that said basically you could impeach somebody for bribery or treason. And George Mason at that point sort of says, "Well, hold on. There's other things that you know impeachment history suggests that we should be concerned about." Uh, he throws out uh, the term maladministration um, and. Uh, Madison jumps in and says, well, look, you know, that's kind of a low bar. That really puts the president under the gun of the House almost continuously. So so let's think of something else. And then Mason comes up with high crimes and misdemeanors. And he references when he does that, the uh, impeachment trial that's ongoing in the UK of uh, Warren Hastings. Hastings, yeah. Yeah, the the would-be or the former uh, governor of India. Which consumed Edmund Burke, right? That was a yeah. Burke was led the impeachment proceedings, and so the impeachment goes on for like you know another eight nine years, uh, proceedings, and then Hastings is eventually uh, not impeached. Um, uh, but at the time, uh, Burke was making the argument that Hastings was guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, not only because of certain activities, um, but Burke explicitly says, "Look, there are some things you know the governor." His discretion is allowed to do, but if he does them against the sort of the constitutional norms, that's a high crime and misdemeanor. So, when they stick high crimes and misdemeanors into the into the text of the Constitution, I think they had in mind 
reaching those activities, which can be perfectly legitimate at one level, but done for illicit purposes. Right. So for the sake of argument, the president has a lot of latitude in foreign policy. He could bomb some city under the pretext of fighting terrorism or whatnot, but provide coordinates to take out all of the rival hotels to the one he owns, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be within the president's foreign policy ambit. We can sort of stipulate for the sake of yeah. argument. And while it might violate some statute of law that someone could identify, that's not what the impeachment would be about, right? The impeachment right. would just be the act in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, again, there's all kinds of examples like, um, you know, pardon power, right? Mm-hmm. So the president on paper, it looks like he has this plenary power uh, on uh, on pardons. Except that, what if a president sort of pardoned people um, that were drug dealers that you know in previous years had given him cocaine, mm-hmm. right? So that would you know, on the face of it, the pardon power is his to give or to use. But at the same time, he's using it for this other purpose, and so therefore, it's it's um, I think covered by high crimes and misdemeanors. Wasn't the original point? of the pardon power in part to sort of put the question of the loyalists versus the revolutionaries to bed? Wasn't that part of it? Or Well, yeah. I, th- I mean, in general, there were two reasons why they went, they explained the pardon power um, at, the, at the founding period. The first one was uh, sheer necessity. That is, there might be times when, you know, a timely pardon could, you know, quell a revolt. Right. Um, and the second one was just a matter of equity. There can be Occasions where the law says you're, you know, you should be put in prison, but the circumstances are such that it makes clear that that's just an unjust way of proceeding. So there were kind of two broad views about why you should use the pardon power. Now, obviously, presidents these days just sort of hand them out like candy. Um, but I mean, um, when the Constitution was ratified, I mean, we're growing a bit of a cul-de-sac here. Yeah. But that's what this podcast is really all about. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> well, so, I'm wearing a cul-de-sac right now. So. <laughs> um, when the Constitution was ratified, there were basically only three federal crimes anyway, right? I mean, there was yeah. treason, bribery, I think copyright infringement. <laughs> because the only time the right word right appears in the text of the non-Bill of Rights Constitution is for copyright protections, which we defenders of intellectual property like. Um, but so I just always – I could swear I read about it somewhere. It's like the things that they envisioned the pardon power being used for involved pretty high-level transgressions because those are the only transgressions that the federal government could prosecute in the first place, right? Yeah, like yeah, basically. I mean one could imagine a pardon for, you know um, – well, I, yeah, you're right. Look, it's very limited what they could have pardoned for because there weren't very many federal crimes. Right. So, yeah. So back back in the day when the attorney general was really was kind of the president's personal lawyer. <laughs> yeah, and he he rarely showed up for cabinet meetings, and yeah. only only showed up when he was asked to. So it wasn't like he was a you know sort of daily in the daily business of government. So the um, I'm curious when the timeline of the intersection of the t- relevance where there was a time when the postmaster general was more important than the attorney general. Yeah, certainly. And for a lot longer than I think people realize. You know? Well, and also he, uh, they can actually um, 
help unite the nation, so to speak, by having post roads and right. postal officers and local. But like FDR's political fixer, they made him the attorney general. I mean, the postmaster yeah, general. Right. People forget. That. Yeah. yeah. And then by the time you get to Kennedy, the person you want as your fixer is actually the attorney general, not the postmaster general. Right. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, so the you know we're going to avoid for at least in the time being the actual question of whether Trump should be impeached for this or not um and the whole issue of trumpism for a little bit but one of the arguments i've often made is that when george w bush expressly said that he was signing a law that he thought was unconstitutional that that struck strikes me. I'm not saying he should have been impeached for it, but that strikes me as an impeachable offense. Is that wrong? Oh, it's a big question. Um, he's violating I, his oath. He's admitting he's violating his oath. Yeah, no, I think I think it falls within. It depends on the pattern of activities. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think this kind of routine thing. I mean, I should step back. First of all, I agree with you. I don't think president. If there's some part of the, a bill that that violates his constitutional rights, then he shouldn't sign the bill. I mean, then, then there should be a bargaining process with uh, with the Congress, mm-hmm. um, which in general has disappeared, by the way. I mean, everybody keeps looking to the courts to sort of fix, the, fix these uh, disputes. Um, the difficulty would be is that once this becomes kind of a norm of presidents doing it, it's very hard to argue that, you know, the next president does that. It's an impeachable offense. Right. That said, it's it's, you know, arguably... You could say he's not faithfully executing his office, uh, which is certainly part of his oath. Um, and so it is a, you know, it's a narrow case, but but um, uh, you could argue that, yeah, it's an impeachable offense. All right. So that's, that brings us back what the founders actually intended. What is the difference between what you think the founders intended and what in the UK would be basically a vote of no confidence? Yeah, I mean, so again, I think Madison during the convention tried to suggest that you had to you had to move beyond what he called maladministration, which would just be somebody <clears throat> or the House deciding that somebody's just a poor uh, policy person or poor executor of the of the laws, and so high crimes and misdemeanors was a step above. Um, I mean, in general, they understood that they were creating a president or an executive that had real real power as opposed to what the Articles of Confederation had done. So, um, And I think they tried to balance that out by sort of putting down some obligations, some duties. So with high power came high responsibilities. Um, and so I think that's how Article 2 really is is framed. So, but, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors is going to be, it's going to be a judgment of call about how those things uh, play out, whether in principle... Uh, what you've done rises to the level that you should be removed from office. And that's the reason why the senators are involved, because in theory, um, they have some sort of political judgment that maybe perhaps a, a Supreme Court justice wouldn't have. Does the phrase high cards and misdemeanors, does it come from the Hastings impeachment or is it older than that? Well, Mason explicitly says high crimes and misdemeanors and connects it to Hastings. Uh-huh. But it is older. I mean, there's a whole history of high crimes and misdemeanors in British constitutional history. Ironically, high crimes and misdemeanors was never used in terms of uh, criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was other terms of art that were used to define crimes, and high crimes and misdemeanors wasn't one of them. And it's, technically it should be read as high crimes and high misdemeanors, right? I mean, that's sort of what they – Yeah. Because misdemeanor sounds like parking ticket to most people. Yeah, although, again, misdemeanors didn't mean – What misdemeanors mean? mean today. I mean, 
when you go back and look at all the sort of cases, it's a very, you know, it, it covers the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if, if you had to sort of nail it down, you would say, and this is true for the ratification debates and sort of early commentary, it's basically to cover uh, an abuse of public trust. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole issue of the root for office is the Latin term for uh, duty. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about the executive office, you're really talking not only about the authorities, but you're also talking about the responsibilities, hence the kind of oath the president has. Um, so it's, you know, if you go through the ratification debates, absolutely every term in the world is used to define high crimes and misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the consensus really is a violation of the public trust, which Hamilton says explicitly in the Federalist Papers. So um – since you're an institutions guy and a political theory guy. Um, you say that as though that's a bad thing. <laughs> no, no, it's a great thing. It's just, you know, there are the, we have a regular uh, parade of people coming in here that I hit with these various questions until I get the answers that I want out of them. And um, um, It is your podcast. It is my podcast. I, I paid for this microphone, Mr. Breen. Uh, Don't you dare ask him about Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. <laughs> I will not ask him about Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., although now that you brought him up. Uh, no, uh, uh, where do you come down on – it is the theory, it is the consensus view of this royal podcast that um, the phrase co-equal branches of government is what political scientists call garbage. And that if you go and look in the Federalist Papers, the, only, the word co-equal shows up, but it's almost exclusively describing the relationship between the House and the Senate. It is not describing the relationship between the Congress and the executive or the judiciary. And my friend Luke Thompson was the first to point this out to me, that it really only enters the political lexicon in the 70s when the Nixon administration is trying to invent some obstructions to impeachment inquiries by saying that we are co-equal branches of government. Um, but if you if you look at what the Congress can do, the Congress appoints vast numbers of federal of executive branch officials it can remove federal officials it has the power to tax which the founders thought was kind of important declare war which they thought was kind of important um it's the only branch that can screw with the other branches the other branches really can't screw with it and so are where do you come down on the question of co-equalness boo versus uh uh legislative supremacy uh in neither place okay <laughs> so, so um, – and thank you for asking because I've written about this. Um, it's it, The term is misused as you suggest. Um, so depending on the circumstances uh, and what the issues are, either Congress will be primary or the president could be primary. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of the things I think that gets missed, for example, is when domestic affairs was the primary, you know, function of – the, uh, the government, Congress was clearly in the driver's seat. Um, after World War II, when the United States took on a global role and foreign policy and defense issues became more important, uh, it was inevitable that the the sort of potential powers of the presidency would come to the fore. So they're, they're co-equal in the sense that they each have a kind of primacy depending on which policy issue, what mm-hmm. policy area you're talking about. Um, and then you get to places where, you know, there's just these inevitable tensions. So, for example, uh, you know, the president 
um, since George Washington has claimed executive privilege, that is the ability to withhold papers and mm-hmm. documents from from the Congress. Well, Congress also has the right um, to require information. So they're they're just completely, you know, in opposite with each other. And so then the question becomes, you know, how do you settle that dispute? Um, unfortunately, today we always look to the courts to settle that dispute, which is probably the wrong thing to do because both the judgment about what Congress wants and what the president wants to withhold, uh, those are, you know, basically political judgments and not right. judicial judgments. So um, so it's a, I, it's a much more complex system. I think it's a much more interesting system than just saying the legislative branches, you know, the primary branch and the executive should follow or that they're co-equal. But you're right. I mean, I mean Nixon. Um, and it's very, and it comes up again in the in the Trump, uh, obviously impeachment uh, provisions. Uh, Nixon was accused of withholding materials, uh, trying to suggest that he had an executive privilege to withhold ma- materials in the impe- impeachment inquiry. Um, and the Congress is basically saying, no, an impeachment in- inquiry trumps your ability to withhold information. Yeah. So. Um... I'll just in 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 an act of almost singular asinine pedantry, I will point out that when you say it's not an issue of whether or not Congress is primary, primary is just another word for first, and it is the first branch in the Constitution. It is Article One, and which by definition means it's primary. <laughs> yeah. So um, because. It was thought to be, they were going to be making the laws, mm-hmm. you know? and and then the question becomes, who executes the law? So it's the second branch. But then the question becomes: Is what does the executive power actually? What was the founders think the executive power meant? Was it literally, you know, sort of executing, or did they draw on Locke and Montesquieu and others, and Blackstone and others, and think of executive power as also wielding the sort of public sword um, that is to control foreign policy and defense affairs? So, I mean, if you looked at the reasons for the movement from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, there were a number of reasons. But certainly one that they always talked about was they had to get a, a, a chief executive that was politically capable of checking the legislature, but also capable of running a government, both domestic right. policy and foreign affairs. So, And having a navy that could kick the ass of the Barbary pirates. Yeah, until Jefferson decided they should be little schooners and just kind of floating around uh, the, you know, the, the tidal basin. Um, okay, so um, I have this theory that I want to fly by you. You're an old hand at this stuff. Um, uh, I can't say I've ever really cared much about the issue of executive privilege one mm-hmm. way or the other. Um, I guess the pay- times I've paid attention to it were either times where I was against it because I didn't like the president who was in the office or I was for it because I did like the president who was in the office. I was much more angry about Bill Clinton's claims of protective function privilege, which is his claim that his Praetorian Secret Service agents did not have to discuss crimes that they witnessed, which was an invented new privilege. But um, on the executive privilege thing, I kind of feel... So most of my lawyer friends, and mm-hmm. we've got you know my, our colleague Adam White, uh, very good friend of mine, Shannon Coffin, and you go, I start looking around. Almost all of them, to one extent or another, cut their teeth in the executive branch. 
as, you know, in the White House Counsel, Solicitor General, Office of Legal Policy at the, uh, the, the Justice Department, whatever it is. And it, it only recently kind of made me feel that maybe my, even though I love a lot of these guys and they're good friends of mine, but um, that maybe the lawyers I know, because they were all trained up within the executive branch, have a view of executive branch power that I'm becoming increasingly hostile to. Um, you know, and Bill Barr is an example. I, I think Bill Barr is getting something of unfair treatment, but he's making it much more difficult every day for me to keep making that argument. Yeah. Um, but culturally, you also sort of see something about this in the foreign and defense world where they're – because a lot of these guys care so much about, you know, national security and defense stuff. They're much more in favor of a president with a lot more leeway to do things. Do you disagree with that? Do you, have, you know, It's a cultural point I'm trying to make. Yeah, no, I look, uh, as somebody who began his career sort of challenging the sort of imperial presidency thesis, um, I'm inclined, I mean, I actually do think that the, the, the founders try to create a pretty powerful chief executive. But it's complex now because, look, they didn't anticipate political parties. They didn't anticipate uh, presidents who would think that they had popular mandates the way the, the way we do now. So um, I'm much more inclined these days to think that there needs to be a stronger Congress to pull back uh, or not pull back but challenge some of these uh, uh, executive discretion decisions. I mean, you know, President Trump and others declaring there's national emergency for this or for that. I mean, Congress in some ways is responsible because they keep putting into law these kinds of discretions. Or oh, they've been giving away their powers for several yeah. years. And, and again, if you look at even sort of the request for executive, I mean, for, um, you know, papers and testimony from uh, Trump officials, you know, the instinct is we got to go to the courts to get that when, you know, I don't want to sound like an old man, but I do remember when I worked on the Hill, we occasionally would say, you know, if, if you don't give us this material, you know, we're defunding the plane you use. Right. Um, you know, so and it was always surprising how quickly the material showed up. Yeah. So there's a bit of relearning sort of what the institutional mechanisms should be. And and it's probably even more necessary uh, these days, given the degree to which uh, the executive has grown in power, both institutionally, but also just as a political animal. Um, but, but let me get, let me sort yeah. of on this, because it's important to note. So again, uh, Trump isn't the first White House to, you know, to sort of have these broad claims of executive privilege. <clears throat> but when uh, George Washington was the first one and the the issue was whether the House should be given uh, the diplomatic papers and the negotiating papers um, that led to the Jay Treaty. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he said, no, I'm not going to give it to you. I'll, I'll be giving it to the Senate because they have a, a role in ratifying the treaty. So uh, Washington sends a note saying – you're not going to get the papers. I'm creating executive privilege. and But then he goes on to say, however, if this was an impeachment inquiry, I'd have to give it to, give right. it to you. And so this, I mean, again, this overall demand, if there is an impeachment inquiry, this overall demand or this uh, 
suggestion by the by presidents that somehow they don't have to be forthcoming from the papers, at least from the standard that Washington set, is, is inaccurate. Right. I mean, that's the argument is that Congress's power to demand stuff is at its utmost during an impeachment. Right. But just, I mean, so with legal, pri- with, with attorney-client privilege, if, let's say Jack is my lawyer and I tell him, you know, where oh, I Oh, you bur- poor son of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I tell him where I buried the body or whatever, yeah. right? If... You're present while I'm telling him that I have no privilege. If I tell somebody else or if I go like Rudy Giuliani and I give a television interview where I talk about burying the body, whatever, that's not privilege anymore, right? Um, the um, How, just as a legal matter, can you have executive privilege, which says I'm not going to give this stuff to the House, but I am going to give it to the Senate? I mean, I thought the whole point of the executive privilege thing was that we don't want the public to have certain information but saying one branch can have it and the other can't? I mean, I, what? what how does well, that I think Washington had in mind was, I mean, again, the Senate actually had a constitutional requirement because they were involved in the ratification. Ratification. So there's that. And the second thing was, you know, and again, this is, you know, you know, 200 plus years old now. But the theory was if you gave these kinds of papers to the House, given the nature of the House, they would in fact leak. Right, um, and that there was less chance of that happening in the Senate now, since we, you know, elect senators popularly these days. It's, you know, presidents could equally sort of say, well, the, the chances of this staying, the stuff staying st- secret is, is pretty small. On the other hand, you know, Congress can rightfully say it's none of your business of how we handle these things, and and so again, there's just the inevitable tension between the two principles: one need for information, and the other withholding information for reasons of state. Was it a mistake to uh, have the direct election of senators? Uh, you're not going to get me. <laughs> that's a, that's a, you know, uh, I can imagine sort of sitting there as I'm being asked uh, uh, or being nominated for be assistant undersecretary for underwear uh-huh. and Senator so-and-so going, by the way, on a podcast. <laughs> I think – uh, I, I think your answer, your non-answer, speaks volumes. Um, so, uh, but it's it, you know, by the way, I, I, there's you know, institutionally less appreciated is the combination of popular election of, of the senators, along with the national income tax. I mean, uh-huh. those two things put together actually probably had a much more revolutionary character uh, impact on the constitutional order than people normally think about. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, um, um, so this is a point I've talked about a couple times here before, but it, dri- it kind of drives me crazy and it gets to this. I personally would be okay with not having, with not having senators directly elected. Um, I think at the time there was an argument, you know, a pretty good argument for doing it and it'd be pretty hard to reverse it now. But what I lament is the loss of understanding of the states. That's the other place where the word co-equal shows up um, in the Federalist Papers is between the relationship between the federal government and the state governments. And there was this idea that states were actually, I mean, they weren't sovereign nations, obviously, but they were entities that mattered. And so one of the things I think is just sort of fascinating is if you listen in the debates about uh, impeachment from the Republicans, and I think most of them are, are very, very bad. But you'll hear phrases like this democratically elected president or 
uh, 63, they want to overturn the will of 63 million voters, right? They always leave out that his opponent got 66 million votes um, and that on the strict principle of democracy, Trump lost. Now, that's okay with me because I like the Electoral College and that was the system that he was asked to compete in. Those were the rules of the game. If it was a national popular vote, campaign would be completely different. The primary system would be completely different. Everything would be completely different. That's all fine. Trump is the legitimately elected president of the United States. My only point is that we do not have a vocabulary that finds legitimacy in anything other than the democracy part, right? Yeah, and no, that's it's a, a real, problem. Yeah, it's a it's a huge issue. I mean, just as a technical matter, of course, the people that are you know the House, you know, people who vote for impeachment, um, that's going to be a majority, and and if you totaled up their electoral victories, they're I mean, they have a right to claim a Democratic mandate just as much sure. as Trump. But the mandate issue is really, really complicated in thinking through all of this. I mean, um, I was struck – I know it's a minor matter, but I was struck when Trump gave his inaugural address, um, you know, besides its basically incoherence. Um, the or they just it was a, just a series of lines that looked like tweets, you know, sort of more formal tweets. But when he got around to talking – the only – sort of matter in the Constitution, I think he talked about was, he says, oh, I've taken this oath. And it's an oath to the allegiance of the American people. Um, mm-hmm. it, well, no, your oath is faithfully execute the office and pr- protect, defend, you know, the, the Constitution. Right. And so the whole notion of constitutional and republic constitutionalism sort of has been buried. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, I think this is one of the the damaging things about about what Senator McConnell and Senator Graham have, have suggested is they're going to have a constitutional role as judges, as jurors, uh, when the impeachment finally comes to the Senate. And they're already acting like just partisans, right. uh, Democratic partisans. And and so somehow they've completely pushed aside uh, what, in fact, will be their oath. Um, so, and they have, to take, they have to take a new oath. Right. For the impeachment thing, which is a much more strict, narrowly defined oath. The Senate, the Senate becomes a different body. It's no longer a legislative body. Right. Um, it becomes – and the oath reflects that. And, you know, you know, if this was a normal court case and somebody, you know, stood up in a jury box and said, well, I think he's guilty without ever actually hearing any right. evidence, of course, the lawyers would toss the juror off you – know, the judge would toss the juror out of the box. So the norms, the forms, you know – uh, matter as much as the fact that people counting up votes who who got elected and who didn't. So somebody on Capitol Hill it was an off the record thing, so I got to be vague and elusive, but uh, raise an interesting question. Does the S- Senate have an obligation to make the impeachment case brought to them by the House stronger than what the House br- brings them? Right. I mean, what I mean by that is I actually think the, the articles of impeachment that the House is poised to pass, may have passed by the time this airs, um, are pretty weak. Um, the case that they have, while I am persuaded that Trump did what he is alleged to have done, is missing a lot of documentation, uh, witnesses who are sort of fact witnesses who are closer to the issue, right, Mulvaney and Bolton and all that. Does the Senate have an obligation to sort of take – 
a weak indictment for the sake of argument and make it stronger in the actual trial? Or do they have to say, okay, this is what you guys have brought us and it is what it is? Oh, I think they have a discretion to, to investigate. I mean, to sort of ask the right kind of questions, whether that turns out to be make the case stronger or whether it makes the case or makes it turns the impeachment, you know, uh, indictments weaker, I think, is is would be up in the air. But I think there's an there's an implicit obligation to take the matter seriously Uh and and lead where the evidence goes. I mean, I agree. One of the problems with the look, I think the House. Um, decided that they wanted just to limit the number of impeachment, you know, uh, uh, points to the two, uh, misuse of the authority for, you know, personal and corrupt purposes and an obstruction by just claiming executive privilege on over and above the impeachment inquiry. I think they thought, well, the simpler is the better because people will understand those things. Mm-hmm. But I actually think it's just the opposite. I think if they were ser- more serious, they would package it with all kinds of here's tr- Trump's behavior. They would mm-hmm. surround it with sort of here's here's somebody who who has sworn an oath, but who may or may not be trustworthy about carrying out that oath. And here's all the examples, even if they're not particularly, you know, sort of uh, impeachable offenses. Um, and then I think when you go to the Senate. I think those are the kinds of things that that senators have to factor into the consideration of whether those particular impeachable offenses that the House has brought um, in that context uh, really do deserve, you know, a a vote on removal. Mm -hmm. In other words, they need to make a larger argument. And I think the Senate isn't going to be doing its duty if it just takes the impeachment uh, indictments and says uh, we vote no. Right. Um, no, I think that's probably right. Um, I don't think it's not going to happen. But that... <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's coloring, coloring themselves in glory and all this. I mean, on the on the Democrat side, again, I think impeachment's a prudential question. Removal's yeah. a prudential question. Right. We people, reasonable people, pro Trump, anti Trump, can disagree on all that. But the, I think what he did is, for the sake of argument, impeachable. But the way the Democrats are doing this is problematic in part because it's sort of like why it's so hard to amend the Constitution. The difficulty of the process guarantees, in order to clear that hurdle, that you've persuaded enough American citizens and enough stakeholders that it's a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't want it to be easy to amend the Constitution in part because going through the hoops of doing the due diligence to amend it is part of the persuasion process of getting buy-in from people. The same should apply to impeachment. You know, and the, if, if they think this guy is a grave threat to democracy, they should do impeachment the right way. And, and so I, I'm very sympathetic to Jonathan Turley's argument in all of this, even though, again, I think Trump did it, you know. Well, and Turley's testimony when read, you know, with, with a little bit of care suggests that he thinks what Trump did was probably impeachable in terms of the offense. Right. Um, that doesn't answer the question of whether it rises to removal. Uh, right. But, I mean, look, I mean, it's a complicated question and I'm not sure I have an answer, but one point for doing impeachment is not simply the head towards removal. It's also designed to um, deter presidential misbehavior in the future. Right. 
Um, and I think that's important. Now, the problem with that is that if then the Senate just turns around and says, you know, we're not going to look at this very seriously, and they vote um, not to remove the, a president, or in this case, Trump, you know, what's going to happen is, is Trump is going to go, see, I was vindicated. This is all a sham. Right. And we're back at square one where he thinks a lot of this behavior is, is acceptable. Yeah. I, I think if Trump's reelected, the guys on the National Review editors podcast were saying this the other day, and I think they're right. He's going to get impeached again. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I think it's kind of obvious that he's going to get impeached again. I mean, actually, obvious. If I had to bet, <laughs> he's going to get impeached again. Well, if somebody who is president and he he's, says to himself, as Trump has, Article Two means I get to do what I want, right? <laughs> then you're you're pretty much loaded to the gun, right? Right. Um, all right. So switching gears uh, just a little bit, since you're also a defense guy, what what should we be most worried about in terms of national security stuff that nobody is talking about? Uh, well, I mean, the, the obvious things are still important. I mean, you know, uh, we've got Belgian hegemony, the Canadian yeah, threat. The Canadian threat, really. I, uh-huh. I think we still have the war plans from, you know, 1911. I think we should <laughs> sort of up, up those. Um, no, I think the, the, the big unknown is in terms of just the cyber warfare efforts. I mean, uh-huh. nobody knows whether we're on top. Uh, we're in danger, um, and how such a you know real cyber war would play out. Um, it's really difficult to get a handle on. I mean, I I began to look at this a couple of years ago, and I finally, without having clearances, I just decided I couldn't find out enough to know things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that probably is the biggest worry, which is that it's really deeply held secrets. Um, um, there's capabilities that don't get used because you don't want to use them and lose them. Mm-hmm. But you never quite know whether, in fact, if you haven't tested them, that they will actually be effective. Mm-hmm. And the, and that holds true for the other side as well. So it's it's a there's a huge amount of ambiguity and and uh, just unknowns in that area that strike me as being. Um, I mean, we know what the Chinese are up to. We know what the Russians are up to. And basically, and we know, despite everything, we're going to be in the Middle East till Kingdom Come. Um, so those are kind of knowns. The cyber stuff is really uh, frustratingly opaque. And mm-hmm. so. Um, so who, who? It seems to me that the consensus in Washington is that short term Russia is more is someone we need to worry about more, but. Long term, it's all China. Is that basically right? Yeah, I think that's changed, though. I think um, particularly with the uh, Secretary Esper, um, who's an army guy, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's made it perfectly clear that they're the resources. So at one point, it looked like, OK, the army was going to have to really take care of the Russia problem because it's land force and the land issue primarily. And then and the Navy and the Air Force were going to have to worry about the Pacific and the Chinese. Uh, the rhetoric. Uh, for the past year and a half is basically the army is moving into the China fight much Mm -hmm. more heavily. Um, So I think even on the sort of immediate scale. um, What does that mean, moving into the China fight? Like planning on troops in Vietnam or (laughs) – I mean what is that? Well, I'm sure there's some folks who would like to do that. Uh, No, it's it's – the army is involved in uh, uh, intermediate range missile programs. Uh Um, it's the force that fires those kinds of missiles. Um, it's also 
the force that has uh, missile defenses. Um, so uh, there'll be a lot of, you know, systems that'll be being worked on, being deployed in the in the region. Uh, where is a big question because some of the places we'd like to be able to deploy are not the most enviable places to be, like the Philippines. But that's all true until Space Force gets up and running, right? Yeah, no, until we have those really <laughs> nifty, cool uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you, where, where, where did you come down on Space Force? Um, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to divvy up the responsibilities. I mean, it's just going to grow as in, grow in importance. I mean, there's overlap. There's always overlap between these different commands. Yeah. Um, so the idea that the Air Force was, you know, sort of like the primary uh, service in, in charge of space is certainly true, and they have equities um, in space that perhaps some of the other services don't have as much. But, you know, we've gone through this before. The Air Force moved off from the Army, and, and we all lived, so... Mm-hmm. I would I would say by the way the the, the difficulty is is that <clears throat> it's not cost cost it's pretty costly to set up a whole new service mm-hmm. um, and the defense budget is you know creeping along and going to go flat so uh, there's a, kind of a budget crunch as well. Yeah, I mean our our I think it was our colleague Mackenzie Eaglin was making the case that the thing that the Pentagon brass thinks about most these days is that we've now reached peak Pentagon budget and it's all gone down from here. Yeah, I mean, so maybe a defense nerd for a second. Trump's added, I mean, the administration and Congress have added, you know, billions, tens of billions of dollars to the defense budget, uh, which is all to the good. Uh, But if you actually go back and do a straight line inflation adjusted from 2011, which is the last um, defense budget that wasn't under the Budget Control Act, um, uh, we've basically reached where the Obama people wanted us to be uh, today. Mm-hmm. In other words, and that wasn't a great budget. I mean, that was a budget that led uh, Obama to say, basically, we can't do global stuff anymore. We can only handle one fight at a time, and, and on top of which we're going to uh, you know, move our resources to Asia and abandon Europe because mm-hmm. it's, it's all fine and good, and we'll begin now the Middle East. So basically, in terms of the size of the force and the resources, we're basically about the same place we were in 2011, mm-hmm. except, you know, Europe isn't safe. Mm-hmm. Middle East hasn't stopped being a place where we have to send troops, and the Pacific has gotten worse. So, um, and on top of which, because of the budget deficit, Mackenzie's probably right that the ask for more on defense is probably not likely to come. Yeah. On that cheery note. <laughs> on that cheery note. Gary Schmidt, thank you for coming on. Um, we didn't even gossip about my wife and your 25-year <laughs> relationship with her. But, uh, uh, you know, as a Straussian, it's all very platonic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at some point, I, I, among the requests we get on this podcast for shows, because I'm always dropping these cryptic references to Straussianism without ever really explaining yeah. it, is to do – and you did that piece for the public interest years ago on what was – maybe you and Crystal, I can't remember – what was Leo Strauss doing, or what was he? What? What? It, was, it wasn't me, but but yeah, it Bill. Wasn't you? Yeah, no, it was. Um, uh, I can't remember the the co-authors. Um, but, I could have sworn it was you. Yeah. I will. Um, it may have been me. I've 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 discovered over the years that I write things and then people bring them up and I go, huh? Oh, I, I do that all every now and then. I read something and I'm like, hey, I agree with this, and then I look at the byline. And I'm like, oh, I wrote it. This guy was really smart. <laughs> uh, it's that's a much better experience than finding stuff. And you're like. 
what the hell is this guy talking about? And it turns <laughs> out it's you too. So um, anyway, Gary Schmidt, thanks so much for coming on. You bet. into a meeting he has like four mountain dews in front of him does he really yeah doesn't drink coffee just pounds the caffeine in mountain dew is actually kind of huge yeah it's also the um soda um uh summer camp boys are most likely to replace with urine (laughs) (laughs) in practical jokes